0: I don't care how fast your car is, you can outrun existential dread. We're talking about the driver today on Cinema Oblivia. Welcome again to Cinema Oblivio, your podcast for movies that have been forgotten, thrown aside, tossed aside, unremembered, disregarded, outdated, and out of fashion. I am once again your host, James Eldred, and who do I have joining me for today's episode? You have Brian Ashcraft. Hey, Brian. Thanks for coming. Uh, Can you tell people a bit about yourself? Uh, My name is Brian. Uh, I'm a
1: writer. Uh, My my main gig is writing for Kotaku.com. Uh, I also write for the Japan Times, and I write books.
0: Yeah, and I like movies. Yeah, yeah, you do. Jesus Christ, man! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I, I know you from Kotaku first, and then like your books about you know booze and oh, um, right. that stuff secondary. You're one of the very first people I contacted to do this like last year when I was still planning it because I was tweeting a lot about Doris Day movies, and every time I did you would respond in very enthusiastically. And, Doris Day! Yeah, because Doris Day is great. So then I was like, hey, you want to talk about Doris Day movies? And we went back and forth on those for a while, and then you ended up wanting to talk about this movie. What we, <laughs> so how did we yeah, get... Yeah, like, couldn't be further away from Doris Day movies. Um, how I, did we get from Doris Day to Walter Hill's 1978 car movie, The Driver?
1: Yeah, and not only that, it's uh, Walter Hill, the the returning champion of this podcast. Yeah, so. the
0: first time I've done that, I think no, 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 no. There'll be another. I I have two episodes with Hal Needham, the director of Smoking the Bandit and Rad. So this is the second time I've double dipped. But yeah, <laughs> Walter uh, Hill, director of Streets of Fire. But how how did why did you want to talk about? Because this one wasn't even on my list of movies. You were like, I want to talk about the Driver. <laughs> why is right? That? I'll tell you why, because when
1: when we were talking about it, and just just to be clear, like, you know, love Doris Day. Old man. Uh uh, my mom is like a huge Doris Day fan. And so, like, just growing up, like Doris Day seemed like she was kind of always around. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <I suppose>. um, <laughs> um, but when I saw that you had done Sorcerer, because I actually wanted to, I was like, Sorcerer, I want to talk about Sorcerer. And I saw that you'd done Sorcerer. Yeah. Uh Just the connection in my brain was like, oh, we need to do something else with cars and driving. Well, that would be trucks, from trucks to cars, and uh, The Driver. And The Driver was one of the greatest movie-going experiences I've ever had in a
0: theater. Really? Yeah. Uh, Talk about that. When did did you get to see this movie in a theater? Because I don't think you're that—if you're older than me, you're not that much older than me.
1: Right. Yeah. I know. I mean, this, the <laughs> the, the, this came out in 78. So that was the year I was born. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't get to go see it that year. Okay. Um, but um, I saw it in the the mid to late nineties at the Egyptian in uh, Los Angeles. And they were showing a 35 millimeter print of it. And I think a friend of mine had said like, oh, you should go see the driver. And I was like, the driver, what's the driver? And my friend was like, oh, it's a Walter Hill movie. Uh, it's about a getaway driver. You like it. And so I went with, I took another friend of mine, a guy named Kenny, uh, who I went to school with. And he wasn't like a big movie guy at all. But I thought, like, oh, this would be, you know, this should, should hopefully be fun and interesting. And we saw it. And I remember both of us when we walked out of the theater, we were like, what was that? That was like truly amazing. And it was immersive in a way that I think few movies I've seen actually have been. Um, And it just impressed, I mean, you know, I'd studied in college, I studied, I'm miserable at French, but I studied French because I loved French movies. Oh, okay. And so it kind of hit a lot of those sensibilities, uh, yet it also felt still very American. Uh, You know, I'm a big Michael Mann fan, so there's like some stylistic crossover with that. And I was also living in LA at that time off Wilshire and and Rampart in this like uh, residence hotel that was like... Built in the nineteen twenties, uh, hadn't been updated since like maybe the late fifties or early sixties. And just the kind of the look of the film and that part of Los Angeles I was very, very familiar with. Okay. And so it just touched, it kind of like ticked all these boxes, like emotional uh cues or responses for me. Oh, okay. And I just loved it. I thought this movie's and I still think it's just utterly fantastic. It's one of my favorite movies.
0: Yeah. I I'm a huge Walter Hill fan, you know. Um Like, I think I have said before on this podcast, The Warriors is probably one of my first favorite movies. Mm -hmm. I used to watch it as a kid. And, you know, as I grew up, I I discovered that a lot of movies I liked were by him. Like, I liked 48 Hours and, and, you know, later on, Streets of Fire. Mm -hmm. And I even liked Last Man Standing. So, you know. I, I love that movie. That movie's fantastic. Probably his last good movie. And... And even then, it's not. I don't think it's fantastic, but it is is decent. But then this wasn't on my radar as much, and I forgot how it got on my radar. I saw it probably, maybe a little over ten years ago for the first time, probably when it first came on DVD, and I didn't really know anything about anybody who was in it other than maybe a little bit about Bruce Dern, but not Mm -hmm. much, and Mm -hmm. because at the time he wasn't he wasn't acting that much, and it just kind of blew me away as a fan of a certain type of movie as a, at these kind of, as we'll talk about minimalist crime movies, right. very, you know, like hard boiled neo-noir. And I feel in the pantheon of minimalist crime films, this is the most minimalist and most existential and very abstract and, almost to a fault at times, but just such a strange movie that it immediately just captivated me. And I've seen it a few times since and I saw it to a lot of my friends. And yeah, it's a fantastic, very strange crime film that's very, I think, even for the 70s, very atypical.
1: Uh, I think it's for American cinema. It's like, uh, <laughs> just, you know, um, it, it's it's atypical, yet it's been so influential in, in, a, in a weird way. I think the thing that makes it so interesting is that it, it's kind of created a genre, a sub of film. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, I think just for the just getaway driver of movies, I mean, there's been a whole, you know, we'll get probably talk about that during this podcast. Oh, totally, yeah. Uh, but there's been a spate of them. But it's also a movie that, if this movie had been made in, let's say, the late 80s, the mid to late 80s, or the late 90s, people might have thought like, oh, this is like Walter Hill doing Michael Mann. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I don't think Michael Mann I think probably Michael Mann has seen this movie and probably likes it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't feel like he's copying it. I think they're going to a lot of the same sources or mm-hmm. share a lot of the same sensibilities. But I, I think it, it, it kind of defined this certain style that really didn't exist to this kind of degree in American cinema, uh, yeah. which which makes it fascinating to watch.
0: Yeah, I think both Mann, I think Michael Mann and Walter Hill of this era are both very stylish and Drawn from the same things and kind of taking different things from it, you know, you can compare this to Thief, right? I think, and I think Michael I think Michael Mann is a much more visual filmmaker. Even though I love the look of Walter Hill's films, with the exception of maybe Streets of Fire, mm-hmm. but, like Forty Eight Hours is a great movie, but it doesn't have a super cool look to it. It looks good, but right. it's not like oozing with style like a, like like Heat or Thief or collateral those type of movies you know this is a movie about a a getaway driver i think it might be one of the very first about a getaway driver right and it's a very simple story and as i said very minimal nobody in this movie has a name that's how bare bones it is how stripped down it is and walter hill wrote this wrote and directed this i've talked a lot about him on this Fire episode of course so if you really want to get into walter hill but you can go back to that one but this he wrote this right after he finished Hard Times. Have you seen Hard Times? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, love Hard Times. That's great yeah. one of I think one of Bronson's best films. Oh, he's fantastic in it. Yeah. He's fantastic in it. And it's a good movie. Like Bronson's fantastic in a lot of bad movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he does bring his A game to 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 games that that are, you know, <laughs> that, that are not like, you know, big league games kind of yeah.
0: thing. You know? Ever seen ever seen the evil that men do? I've never seen that, no. Oh, that's fucked up. He's great in it. It's terrible, but it's awesome. Anyway, but no, in Hard Times, took they finished Hard Times, and it took a while to come out because Charles Bronson had made like 85 movies in two years. Right. So so they really had to buy their time to put it out. And in the downtime, he wrote this. His producer, Lawrence Gordon, kind of his idea. Lawrence Gordon also produced Peace Fire, and he went on to produce, like I said in that episode, Die Hard, Predator, you know, the 80s right that's kind of his game and um uh, but before this walter hill did have experience with car movies to an extent he was the second assistant director on bullet
1: but i think he only did
0: like crowd scenes for that well he's, I mean? he was the ad so like he did right. all he, kinds of weird shit but
1: no i mean he specifically said that he only like handled crowds i think it was like the thing about the 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 amazing thing about bullet was that up until bullet all car chases were going to be like second unit. Mm-hmm. And then phony processing shots. Yeah, yeah. And then so Peter Yates is like, we're going to do first unit stuff. And we're going to shoot it like a, you know, have the star in the car showing him driving, et cetera, et cetera. And so you you get a lot of shots of him driving. There's, a I mean, a lot of, I mean, it's Steve McQueen. So, of course, you want to see him
0: drive. And he can drive. He's a, he, he is an actual driver. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and like, I mean, he wasn't doing the super
1: complicated stuff. But he was doing, looked like he was doing a lot of it. I'm sure he would have wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure the insurance agents were like, you can't... You like, can't. Steve, Steve, slow your roll. Calm the fuck down, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at the way that the... I mean, Bullet's a you know, it's a, one of the greatest car chase scenes ever filmed. Yeah. If you look at the way that that shot and then the way that the car chase uh, scenes and the driver shot, they're totally different.
0: Oh, yeah, very different, yeah.
1: What Peter Yates seemed to to be really invested was like, here is movie star Steve McQueen driving a car. Here's the car. The car is a badass. And those are the kind of the stars of the that sequence, right? Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of Steve McQueen. Uh, this we get, you know, some of Ryan O'Neill driving, but he, he'll he put the camera on front of the car. Yeah. Uh, kind of the, the way that Friedkin did for his car uh, sequence in the French Connection. Mm-hmm. And that... I think that's one of the things that makes it so immersive.
0: It gives it a sense of speed. Yeah, and, and they're they're going fast. They're going too. fast, and it focuses the car. the The cars, the acts, what the cars are, don't matter as much, right, as in other car chase films. Like I forget the cars in this movie. They, they don't. Other than that, Mercedes, um, right, right, right. <laughs> but it's not like bullet, you know, where that car is important. Or I just recorded an episode about the original Gone in sixty seconds, and right. you know that's a nineteen seventy one Ford Mustang tricked out to look like a nineteen seventy three Ford Mustang. And I know this because you're supposed to. It right. doesn't matter because what he he the cars in this are secondary to the actual driving and this almost the city too the way he shoots the city all at night with really good lighting and it's just, yeah, everything in the list looks so damn good. This is Walter Hill, a, a, a game Walter Hill. Like I think probably his most in terms of just using a camera to create good visuals and not relying on music or costumes or performances or any editing, just the shots looking good. This might be his best looking movie.
1: Yeah, and, and the thing that's also so interesting about the car uh, chase sequences in this movie is those boulevards in LA are big.
2: Yeah,
0: they're, yeah. They're,
1: they're wide. And uh, I think by shooting it at night, that's what makes it claustrophobic.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Th-
1: that kind of, and, and, and if you, and it's harder to, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a terrible night driver. <laughs> um, and so if you see something, for example, like the the car chases in Ronin. Oh, man, yeah. Those are like on these tiny narrow streets, and that gives it that sense of uh, that makes it seem difficult, or that's the kind of the, the the you know the artistry artistry of that chase. Uh-huh. And here, if they had shot these car chases during the day
0: on these streets, I think it would have actually been kind of boring. It would have been boring, and by making them at night, the the I think the streets are unnaturally barren. You know, there's there's nobody on the roads. If you right. do these in the daytime, there's, it has it'd be unrealistic to have nobody there. Right. So it's already a little unrealistic. But to have him in the daytime and it be empty, it'd be like an apocalypse. You know, you can't do that. <laughs> so I think having him in this super ultra stylized nighttime, it almost makes the, the world of the movie like their playground to a right. certain extent. Like some of the stuff in the movie, like the scene at the Mercedes, in the real life, somebody would have seen that and called the cops. But in the world of the driver, it doesn't matter. Because right. this movie does not take place in reality.
1: <laughs> and the, 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 the other, you're talking about the the style of, of this movie. What's so interesting, I think, about Hill as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. is like, unlike somebody like Michael Mann, where even if it's like... Uh, um, you know, something like The Insider or whatever, it still looks like a Michael Mann movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He has different kinds of styles. I think I think I think collateral looks way different than, you know, Manhunter.
1: Yeah, but it's still kind of like there's still a progression. But if you if you watch like The Driver and then you were to watch like Red Heat, and then you were to watch Brewster's Millions, and then watch, you know, Last Man Standing, you would not believe that the same guy visually directed them. They look completely different.
0: Yeah, and I think sometimes that's almost to a fault for him. Right. I think, like in his later films, especially like *Trespass* or *Supernova*, which was so terrible, he took his name off of it. And *Bullet to the Head*, which I watched, which is, it's not only is it a bad movie; it's not terrible. It's just boring, and it looks—it looks boring. It looks like an episode of CSI. Mm. And. I feel like sometimes Walter Hill doesn't put the you know this movie he's 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 directing his ass off in this movie and I feel like this is the movie where he wanted to ride his ass off and direct his ass off to really make it look like something crazy, right. One other person with the movie I do want to talk about who, behind the scenes that is, is not someone who didn't they didn't do a lot, but it's interesting that they're here. <laughs> is mm-hmm. Frank Marshall helped produce this? Mm. The associate producer, and that's that's, Spiel, that's Spielberg's producer, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he produced he produced this and the Warriors for Hill and then went to Spiel, went to Spielberg and never came back. But it was funny that he. in an interview I saw with Walter Hill, the, I think it was Edgar Wright was interviewing Walter Hill and he showed a photo that, of that Frank Marshall took. Frank Marshall still has the orange Mercedes car door. What a great thing to have. Signed by the entire crew. (laughs)
1: Yeah. What a great, what a great like office piece or
2: something. No, I think,
0: that I think, now Frank Marshall didn't do a lot with this movie, I don't think, and you know, maybe he did, I don't know, but I think it's worth pointing that out because even, Frank Marshall's produced some of the biggest movies of all time, but, this movie apparently has some kind of, you know, resonance for him because he kept on to, he kept, he held on to that. I don't think, does Frank Marshall have anything from Congo? Probably not. No, no. <laughs> he directed I, Congo.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think
0: like, um, and, and I imagine that
1: like, fr- from what I understand, the, the production on this movie was, was not easy. I mean, they, you know, an electrician fell off the side of the,
0: yeah, somebody almost
1: died Yeah, a building when they were lighting one, you know, the first car chase. So, Mm -hmm. and then they had to shoot it at night. And then they were shooting it downtown uh, in the late 70s, which downtown LA has changed since then. But I think it at that time was a lot, you know, uh, a rougher place to be at. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the shoot wasn't, I mean, it wasn't as bad as like Southern Comfort or something like
0: that. Yeah, Southern, (laughs) Southern Comfort's the one he made in the swamps. Yeah. You've seen Southern Comfort?
1: Yeah. And I've actually, what's really interesting mm-hmm. is I've been to Caddo Lake where they filmed it.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Because um, that, well, that's the only, half of it's in Texas, half of it, I'm from Texas, and half of it's in Texas, half of it's in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And it's the only natural lake in Texas.
0: Oh, okay. So. <laughs> you are the third person, you are the second person I've met who has seen Southern Comfort, the other being my boyfriend who watched it with me so uh, it it because that movie that movie did shit and he, like this movie we'll get to it didn't do very well it did okay here in japan and kind of bombed everywhere else southern right. comfort didn't do shit anywhere like that is probably his least known film i love southern comfort maybe that's another for another episode uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he did have a hard time getting this movie off the ground because it couldn't get a cast um, the studio wanted Bronson, but Bronson he didn't want Bronson, and Bronson didn't want to, didn't want Bronson because Bronson was pissed at Hill <laughs> for editing out Jill Ireland's role in Hard Times because Bronson and Ireland were married, and so he passed. Steve McQueen didn't want to do it because he didn't want to do another car movie, you know. Um, McQueen would have been
1: ba- but McQueen would have been a bad choice, I think.
0: I think McQueen would have been a different choice. Yeah. I think he has an intensity to him that is is unique. Hill knew McQueen. I th- Hill Hill had worked with McQueen kind of because from Bullet, and he wrote The Getaway, right for for Sam Peckinpah. But I think that Frank Marshall and Hill both had kind of relationships with Ryan O'Neill because right. Hill had written The Who Came to Dinner, which I have been told is not a good film. Right, and Frank Marshall produced People Moon and Nickelodeon. The Peter Barnabas Nickelodeon, not 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 the network, right. and. <laughs> So they both – that's probably how Ryan O'Neill got involved. Ryan O'Neill at this point I think was still pretty hot shit, right? Yeah, because he
1: was coming off of – I guess uh, – I think they were just making What's Up. He had already made What's Up Doc I think. What's Up Doc is much earlier. That's in the early 70s. Early 70s and then he had done – paper moon i think he was coming off of very the the kubrick movie right so
0: yeah yeah he's still yeah he had a weird career he has a weird career he, i think he's pretty much retired now but he did yeah he's had some health issues he's so. had some health issues and he's you know other issues but right. he 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 was on a, a tv soap opera called Peyton place in the early 60s which was apparently a very big deal yeah he did a f- couple small movies and then he did love story which it's the second time this movie, that movie's come up on this podcast, and I God, I hate that goddamn movie.
1: He's, you know, what his career was kind of like. His career is kind of like Johnny Depp in a way. Hmm, how so? In the, in the sense that he became this like massive kind of star, and then he started to try to make some choices that were kind of atypical. Mm-hmm. You know, like working with Kubrick and then doing this movie and stuff like that. He could have kept doing kind of like love story kind of movies or kind of you know romantic. You know comedies, like very broad comedies, like What's Up, Doc?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he started making kind of decisions that he wanted to do kind of more challenging or interesting pieces.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then for the driver, he's just completely underacting. He's yeah. not even like a, a movie star in this movie. Yeah. And I think if McQueen had been, uh, I mean, McQueen could still do subtle, but he still was Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. and he had that that brand. And I don't think he would be willing to kind of subjugate himself and his own kind of star power. In the same way that O'Neill was, and there would have, the driving scenes would have been different. It would have been more picked, you know, shots of Steve McQueen driving. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I think that that's what makes. Um, I mean, Ryan O'Neill is 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 one of those guys where you like look at his early career. You look at the run of like he was like you know one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. You look at his like later career. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. It reminds me of somebody like. You know, like, like Ray Milan, you know, Ray Milan you know, wins an Oscar and then okay. he's like in the, the thing with two heads.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know? it reminds me, you know, I get that reference. I think a good majority of my listening audience might not. I think of more, <laughs> I think he reminds me directly and concurrently of Peter Bardanovich, the director, okay. because or 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 even like Burt Reynolds. In, but Bert would still kind of have those bursts, you know what he, I mean? He would come and go, but, yeah. But, the, like, Ryan O'Neill, he had Love Story, uh-huh. What's Up, Doc, pa- and Paper Moon, back, almost back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, three, right. th- three huge movies, two great movies, and then Barry Lyndon, which didn't do great, but it was critically – you know, it's an interesting film, and people are like, you know, it's it's Kubrick, it's, it's crazy, good effort. Right.
1: And then <laughs> – yeah, I mean, yeah, this is just like, just being in a Kubrick movie is kind yeah. of it, its own.
0: And then he did this, and the sequel to Love Story, Oliver's Story, that no one has ever seen. I've not seen that. <laughs> no. And then the Barbara Streisand boxing movie, main event. Right. I love saying that sentence. And then um, Green Ice, like movies you've never heard of. Um, Green Ice, he's in a film called Partners, which I have seen. Partners is... What if Cruising, but a screwball comedy? It's about a serial killer who's killing gay men. Uh And Ryan O'Neill has to go undercover with a gay cop played by John Hurt. And goodness, it it is (laughs) someday I want to do a podcast like just on canceled films, and I'll lead with that one. It is one of the most offensive films I've ever seen. And then he made a reconcilable differences, it's a pretty big hit, not huge, but you know. Decent with with Shelley Long and little little Drew Barrymore and a very young Sharon Stone, and then he made Fever Pitch, which is considered one of the worst movies of all time. <laughs> and then in the '90s, he did a few things, and like he's kind of just done. Like he's yeah. had health problems. He's had he's
1: substance issue problems. He's
0: kind of a piece of shit. Like <laughs> I mean, you know the this this the the two stories I always hear about Ryan O'Neill is he's doing he was doing cocaine with his kids. When they were, when they were kids,
1: tr- is that true?
0: That is what Tatum O'Neill has said. Not Tatum O'Neill. I think Griffin O'Neill. One of them has said that. He also, when um, Tatum O'Neill was nominated for an Oscar for *Paper Moon*, and he wasn't, she says he hit her. Ooh, he's ten years old. He also, he also hit on her at at Farrah. He was a he was Farrah Fawcett's partner off and on for a long time. Right. At Farrah Fawcett's funeral. Mm. He hit on Tatum O'Neill not knowing it was his daughter. Uh. Ryan and he knows that's sad. Like he's not he's self aware of his own his own downfall. He he regretted making this movie. I found this interview with with Gene Siskel from By the A- driver. He, he regretted a lot of stuff, but, you know, it was an interview that, you know, he kind of had to come back with ir- ir- irreconcilable differences. Mm-hmm. And he had an interview with Gene, S- Gene Siskel, and he at- Siskel asked him about some of his lesser films. And he, he said, and I quote, some of the roles I'd played in the past were off the beaten path for me, and I never should have done them. That's like he's he he made these weird choices. Yeah.
1: He, then he was trying to get back to them with all these kind of bad movies in late yeah. 70s. and early. Yeah,
0: but let, let me – let me. this gets sadder. So, okay. He's okay. like, pictures like a bridge too far, the driver, so fine, partners, the thief who came to dinner, and green Ice." But uh-huh. I had become accustomed to living in a style in Hollywood in which if you don't do movies, you don't get paid, and you can't live that way anymore. And I have two ex-wives, enormous alimony, and child support payments. <laughs> Ooh. Um so, yeah, yeah, but I feel like he he started
1: making these kind of idiosyncratic choices, mm-hmm. uh, starting with a Kubrick picture, and then maybe he wasn't getting as good like mainstream scripts or
0: roles that he could have gotten coming off of Paper yeah. Moon.
2: Yeah,
1: who knows? And then I think he regretted it,
0: so. Oh, totally. Like, he could have gone into the romantic comedy route. You know, I don't know why he didn't do that. There's a lot of b- bad decisions, you know? so <laughs>
1: Right. Well, good decision. I mean, he made The Driver, and it's one of his—he's fantastic it, in it.
0: Good creative decisions, bad financial decisions. There we go. Let's just say. Speaking of idiosyncratic, you got Bruce Dern here. <laughs>
1: Bruce Dern in this movie is acting in another movie from everyone else in the entire movie. I think everyone is. <laughs> no, I'd say Isabel Johnny and, and, and Ryan O'Neal are
0: in the same movie. Uh, yeah, well they have to be, yeah. But everybody right, but, else but, but, but Bruce Dern is like in his own movie. <laughs> yeah. If you if you're younger than us and you don't know who Bruce Dern is, Bruce Dern is Laura Dern's dad. There you go. He's also he kind of got famous for killing John Wayne in a movie. He shot John Wayne in the back in the Cowboys, which is a terrible movie. But if you want to see John Wayne get killed, which almost never happened (laughs) in a movie, there (laughs) you go. Have you seen any of his any other because Bruce Dern between I counted between 1964 and 1979, he was in 30 films.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the first movie of his he's in Gatsby, right? Yes, he is. He's in Gatsby. So that's the kind of that was probably the first movie I saw with him. And then I think I s- he's in isn't he in Bloody Ma- the Corman movie Bloody Mama as well?
0: Yes he is. He's in Bloody Mama. He's also in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, he's in The Wild Angels, he's in The Trip. Those are all Corman flicks.
1: Isn't isn't uh De Niro in Bloody Mama as well? I've never seen Bloody Mama. So Yeah, so
0: yeah. Great like, name
1: for a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean It's like that whole, you know, when all those kind of depression era gangster movies were kind of the craze, you know, Corman cashed in with his own uh, uh try you know to try to to s- ski in the wake of like bunny and Clyde
0: but uh, yeah 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 is in in that movie and so is uh Shelly winters so now i have yes. to watch that. so now i, I have mean, to sh- watch that movie because crazy Shelly winters is the best Shelly winters she's fantastic in that
1: movie yeah I bet I she is i haven't but, seen it since I was like 12 but <laughs>
0: like, so. yeah I think he he's in a a good silent a good sci-fi movie called Silent running which is kind of which is also really depressing so warning um mm-hmm. But he kind of slowed down in the 80s. He's in The Burbs. (laughs) He's in... He's in... He's in two Joe Dante films that aren't gremlins. He's in The Burbs and Small Soldiers. So... (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. And then he didn't really act much in the 80s and 90s. But then since the 2000s, he's been in like 8 million movies. He was in Monster. He's in all the... He's in every Tarantino film since Django. He was... uh, That movie Nebraska, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for. Like... He's he's just kind of got like a I guess Hollywood needed a weird old man and he was good to go. He has
1: such interesting energy yeah. uh, in, in this movie. Like in all of his movies, he's just
0: he's 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 very interesting to watch. He, you know, he, he's like if Christopher Walken's trying to play John Lithgow, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like <laughs> three, he, three, but, three but sides of you know, the same like, coin.
1: But yeah. you know that like Walken has like kind of reached a point. Where it's like, Walken is
0: doing Walken. Yeah, Walken is self-parody, yeah.
1: He, he Bruce Dern hasn't reached that
0: point yet. Well, I think if Bruce Dern had been in more films, he might have. <laughs> <laughs> He's been in a gazillion movies. <laughs> but, okay, if Bruce Dern had been in major roles in major films. Okay. Christopher Walken started being batshit crazy in Deer Hunter and never stopped. <laughs> Actually, Christopher Walken. Remember, he has that one scene in Annie Hall, and he's crazy in that one scene. Yeah, he's yeah. Like they,
1: they, in the room, where he's like talking, like Speaking out like, Woody Allen. Yeah, so, <laughs> Woody Allen's like, okay, and he, like he leaves. So. Yeah. So
0: Christopher Walken started on that way and never stopped. Bruce Dern does have more range than Christopher Walken, I think. You know, but
1: you know, like Christopher Walken. Apparently, when he gets a script, he goes through and removes all of the punctuation. <laughs> I'm serious Of course, he does. Why wouldn't no, he? And then that's why he that's why he talks like this, you know. It's just because there's no
0: okay, punctuation. Well, well, then what's William Shatner's excuse? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, and I can never say her name. So Bruce Stern's the detective. Ryan O'Neill is the driver. Again, nobody has names in this. Right. The player is played by how do you say her name? <laughs> Isabella Johnny. Thank you, Isabella Johnny. Do you know you like French movies, right? I do. And so I like what, her very much. So what can you tell me about Isabella Adani? She's uh, like, for, for, to, to circle the conversation
1: back to, to the driver, like, uh, you know, this was the movie that, like this was her Hollywood debut. She was mm-hmm. supposed to be a big star. Yeah. It, it didn't work out that way for her. Oh. But she, she she's very cool in this movie. She's gorgeous. Yeah. And she's, yeah. she looks just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I was watching there is a kind of like a featurette on the making of the driver, huh. on YouTube, from, yeah, and yeah, it's I've like seen from that. The, yeah, yeah, it's from the late seventies. And Bruce Dern says something that's kind of interesting, and he was saying that the role that she was playing, mm-hmm. and the role that uh, you know, the, the role of the connection, mm-hmm. that those in like American cinema were unique
3: mm-hmm. and
1: and totally. And uh, that he was saying that there hasn't been like a kind of like a, a strong, you know, kind of independent woman ca- character in these kind of positions since he said he said since young Betty Davis. And yeah. I would I would disagree with that because, yeah. you know, like 40 guns, you know, you were kind of, uh, sh- you know, shifting aside, you know, Barbara Stanwyck and stuff like that. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, I, I think that that is uh, an interesting comment. And both of the, the, the women characters in this movie are very strong. Uh, totally, and, and yeah. um, very interesting.
0: I think both the both of the woman characters in this film, you could change the roles to men and not change a single line of dialogue. Really. Right? There's a a couple of very small parts with with the player character, maybe, right. but for the most part, no. But yeah, it is a shame that her career in the states never took off because she was nominated for an Oscar at the age of twenty for right. the story of Adele H, a movie about uh Hugh, about uh, Hugo's daughter who was schizophrenic. And then she said this movie killed her career. She said afterwards the only American office I got were bad ones. So she just went back to Europe. <laughs> and,
1: and she had a great career there.
0: Yeah. I knew she was famous in Europe because I was wa- when I was watching it with my boyfriend, my boyfriend, as I said in this, is a very – he is the, a reverse otaku in that he loves – you know, British and European period pieces. So when her name came up and he said, Ooh, Isabella Johnny, I'm like, okay, well, what, 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 what was she in a movie with the word queen in it? And I was right, she's in Queen Margot. So right, 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 right. Yeah. her only other American films that I could find were Ishtar and the remake of Diabolique.
1: Yeah. yeah boy, that, that was a bad idea.
0: That's a rough double. Like,
1: like a Sorcerer was a good idea to remake, remake Clouseau, Diabolique was a bad one.
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> too bad. Yeah, the and, ooh, yeah. And the other woman in the movie is a uh, Ronnie Blakely. She so plays the connection, the kind of like the fence in the movie. Right. I love her character because her character. I want to see her movie. Yeah, this world, this, this, this toughest nails woman, who is working as a connection for car thieves, for, for thieves and getaway drivers, and and m- money laundering and all this cool stuff. And she handles it with such a casualness, like. And Ronnie Blakely is great in that role. She's so good. The kind of the, the way that she commands those scenes,
1: because I mean, her role's not, she's only in a couple scenes in the, yeah. in, in, in the picture, but all the scenes that she's in, she, she's, she just is able to handle herself in all these variety of situations. Is like, she's just a pro, you know, she just comes across as this really tough character. And I, I think that your comment about, like, you could have changed this to a man, you could have changed this to, to whatever, like, and not even miss, it would have been
0: the same character. It would be the exact same character. And I, I love it when movies take that chance and do that. She doesn't act that much. Most people at the time would have known her for Nashville. Right. She's in Nashville, an Oscar-nominated role. Most people now know her as the mom in Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. And she's great in that movie, too. She show, she's so good in that as this this, fucking wasted housewife who's just traumatized beyond repair. And she 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 mostly did so she's also a singer. Like she's done like country records and all this stuff like that. She seems like a fascinating person.
1: And she speaks with this like kind of very wonderful kind of country cadence.
0: Yeah, I want to sing I want to hear her I never heard her music. I would love I need I said check it out. I wonder she has like kind of like a like a Lovetta Lynn vibe. Right, like, and,
1: the, and it, it kind of drives home the kind of the cowboy Western elements in the film. Yeah, yeah. I think by having her in it.
0: Yeah, I think the other villains also make have the one well, more cowboy style. Like, because the other, like, Bruce Stern is the main bad guy. He's a detective. He's the main bad guy. But to get his, to meet, as a means to an end, he employs two two thieves, or robbers. And they don't have names either. In the credits, it's called Glasses and Teeth. They're not major actors. Teeth is played by a guy named Rudy Ramos, who's on who's one of those guys you look on the on the IMDb like, "Oh, you're on all the TV shows." <laughs> and he was in Yellowstone apparently, which I haven't watched, which people like. But the glasses, this dude's interesting. His name's Joseph Walsh. He was in Captain Video and His Video Rangers, which wow. was a 1949 TV show on the Dumont network. <laughs> wow. The very first science fiction TV show, so he was a child actor, and he was a child actor and a teen actor. Didn't do many movies. He he produced and wrote California Split with Roger with Robert Allman, and that's kind of nuts. Yeah, it's weird. It kind of came out of. I want to double check and make. It's, I think it's the same guy. I don't know why it wouldn't. Like I think the am that's a pretty big mistake for the IMDb to make, right? And but like his the only other movie I've seen him in. Is Poltergeist? He's the next door neighbor, right? And he's also in Let It Ride, which I saw when it came out. No, no memory of that. And his he's retired. His last role was in The Glass Shield in ninety four. But he's I think him and Teeth I think they're both great villains. Do you know there's a the scene when
1: he goes to meet Bruce Dern's character on the top of the building? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when I was going back to to rewatch, it, I didn't notice this, but like. His his like a, sh- a shirt lapel uh-huh. is sticking out on one side of his jacket, and then it's kind of like under on the other
0: side. Oh, is he me? No,
1: <laughs> no, no. It just he looks kind of sloppy. Right?
0: That's what I mean. Is he me? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 um, you know, you, you kind of get the vibe of like, well, then this guy's not. He's not kind of up to the task, right? If, if yeah. the driver's like this super criminal, you know, and he's he keeps giving out like hints of how can people catch him and stuff and still nobody can catch him? Um, you you kind of see at that point, it's like, this guy's not good enough. And when I first saw it, I was like, well, maybe that's like a con- continuity like error. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, And then you look at every other shot in that scene, um, and it's still his jacket still and his shirt collar still kind of like sloppy through the whole scene. And I was like, wow, that's like really interesting direction, really interesting characterization. Yeah, I um,
0: think, yeah. I think that's a good idea, and I think him and teeth and glasses are interesting. I think they're scary villains, not because they're some criminal masterminds or super dangerous, but because they're idiots. Right. And they're unpredictable. Right. That's, um, this is going to sound like way out of left field, but I'm one of the five people who like all three Star Wars sequels. Kylo Ren is not the world's greatest villain, but he's an idiot, and he's emotionally unstable. And I think in, in The in the Force Awakens, that's a really good good part of his character that they don't really capitalize on later and that's why he's so dangerous because he's so out to prove himself that he's he he fucks up his own self and you in the process same thing with these guys like glasses especially glasses will kill anybody even if it'll completely screw him over just because fuck you (laughs) like maybe
1: not so much with with glasses because I think that scene where he does like (laughs) like pull out his gun and and you know, shoot shoot the other guy during during that robbery. That to me was just came across as like kind of bizarre. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Well, he um, was mad because you can't really make it out, but the other guy fucked up. Yeah, but the guy that like that guy had always fucked up.
0: He was like, yeah, but you know, it just but that's again, the, the glasses is not a smart character. Right. So, and that's kind of why he's, in my opinion, a good villain is just because not from skill or knowledge or ability, just you don't know what the hell he's going to do. Yeah, I think, I think he, there is a parallel to that a little bit with um, Jamie Foxx's character in Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. Baby, he's not the smartest guy in the movie by a long shot, and he's the most. But he for the first half of that film, he's the most dangerous because he's completely unpredictable, and to the point of his own detriment. And I feel that's the same thing of these characters, especially glasses. Yeah, you
1: know? I don't know. It just seemed. It just seemed. Uh, you know, when I was going back and watching it again, it's like, yeah, he's like, you know, the 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 guy that he's he's doing the robbery with is a guy who like screwed up, you know, driving before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of the like most inept person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it's like they're supposed to be like doing this thing for the Bruce Dern's character. And then all this kind of like this Baroque kind of plot then to like catch him. It didn't ring as true or as frightening to me as teeth.
0: Because okay. Yeah, I can te- see that. Teeth
1: shows up, tries to get in a fight with Ryan O'Neal's character, and he's like, "I just wanted to talk." And <laughs> Ryan, Ryan O'Neal's like, "You did. Go home."
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: and and he just kind of emasculates him in this way, and then later he goes to you know the connection, and then he th- the what he does to her is incredibly disturbing. Yes. And incredibly frightening. Mm-hmm. And so that packed so much power that with, like, the glasses stuff, it was like, you know, uh, okay, you know, I, I guess,
0: you know. Um, what well, I think teeth is a bigger threat, but glasses <coughs> is just so unpredictable. Right. That they're both dangerous to be around. Totally, yeah. Right. They're all good villains. They're all good, like, because Bruce Stern's the main villain, but Ryan O'Neill doesn't interact with him as much. Right, you know the the glasses and teeth are his vessels right. to make Ryan O'Neill's life harder or to screw over Ryan O'Neill. And
1: I, I think what makes them all dangerous, those three characters, singularly dangerous, is that they're, none of them are good at their jobs. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. You know what I mean. And it's like Ryan O'Neil's very good at his job. Yes. And, and so there's like um, uh, Isabel Janney when the 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 movie was like coming out or they're filming it and she was kind of doing publicity for the movie. She kept like comparing uh, Walter Hill to Hawks. Okay, yeah, I can see that. And and if you look at the kind of the the spectrum of his career, it's like yeah, kind of Hawksian in the sense that he he worked in a bunch of different genres. Mm-hmm. But but I would never really thought about this movie because of the 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 specter of John Pierre Melville and Les Samurai looms so yeah, large
0: over it. Yes, we'll
2: get there.
1: I, we'll get there. Yeah, uh, I would never really thought of it in terms of like kind of an hoxian kind of concept Mm -hmm. but after when i read that i thought like yeah you know this is kind of hoxian in the sense that you have people who are professionals yeah or or people who are good at something and then they have like disdain for people who are not and it just kind of reminds me of that scene in like rio bravo where dean martin's character is like the dude is like getting money out of the spittoon and then he gets all beat up and then you know john wayne comes in and kicks those guys ass and saves his life. And he's like kind of looking down at the dude and he's got this look of disgust on him. Mm-hmm. And like Ryan O'Neill's character in this movie feels like he's just like, it has this like look of sadness, but also of like kind of disgust
0: at everybody else in the movie that they're not up to his level. That's a fantastic point. Cause that is, that is a, a comment, that idea of disgust over people who can't get their shit together mm-hmm. is in a lot of these existential crime films that's that's a kind of a thing in the in the thief in point blank with lee marvin and in have you ever seen bronson's mechanic i've not seen that no that's a fantastic movie i will one day talk about i've I mentioned it about eight times on this podcast mm-hmm. but there's a scene where bronson and john michael vincent are at vincent's girlfriend's house she's going to kill herself right because vista doesn't love her And their reaction is not concern or even anger. It's just like they look at her like this is a pathetic piece of shit. And they're timing it. It's like, well, you better. It's like, I took these pills. You better call the police. And he's like, well, I'm not going to. Uh, You got about 20 minutes. And (laughs) it's just this hatred for people who can't get that shit together. Right. And that's. Yeah, common theme in these type of films. There's, a, there is one really small character I want to point out. Did, did you notice who the girl at the hotel was? The girl at the hotel. When they, when Ryan O'Neill goes to the hotel, that that dive, bar, that 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 dive, that shit hole hotel, right? And there's a girl. Her character name is Frizzy. She so look looks kind of like Carol Kane with the frizzy hair. Mm-hmm. Um, that actress plays the exact same role in Forty Eight Hours. <laughs>
1: Well, I think they take place in the same world. Maybe it t- well, Torchies, it Torchies, Torchies, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's the I hate rednecks, you know, scene is in 48 and, hours, and that's the name of the bar in Suits of Fire, the bad guy bar, yeah. and it's in a few other of Walter Hill films. Torchies is Walter Hill's version of See You Next Wednesday <laughs> right,
2: yeah, in John
0: Landis films. So it's always fun to see Torchies pop up, right. and yeah, but that that, that that thing of the girl in the in the hotel is nothing. I just thought it was funny because I was like, I know who that is. God damn it. <laughs>
1: That's a scene where the 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 guy like says it's like extra for like TV or
0: something like that. Yeah, she that. says that. She's Oh, she that. says that. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's like, the scariest saddest hotel in the in the goddamn world. And, that, it, it, and it's like this guy doesn't watch TV. Like what are you talking no, about? <laughs> this Guy doesn't have a life. He, yeah. he is he is what he is. Yes, he is he is the driver in The Driver. So right. I think that's the you know talking about the film more like that's the point of the film is these people, like in this situation, like, you know, because he's a driver and Bruce turns the, de- the detective and he wants to set up the driver by hiring glasses and teeth to do a job and then he'll catch the driver as the getaway driver, right? That's his plan. Right. And the foil in the plan or the, or the uh, uh, someone else in the plan is the player. The player witnesses the driver early on but takes a payout to not ID him have you seen the alternate opening yes
1: so yeah so it was like set up where she was supposed to it's like unlike la samurai which is like you know mm-hmm. a musician in a, in a bar sees alan Delon's character and then doesn't uh id him mm-hmm. you know later just out of like some sort of
0: out of who uh, knows what
1: yeah connection with him you know that th- we th- we can't quite put into words but For this, she was hired to do that, to throw off
0: the cops. Yeah, she was hired to be a bad witness. Right. And that's a fascinating idea. All these characters, they are just, they're not, they're barely people. And that's kind of the point I want to talk about with this movie. I've said it before, this is an existential film. And I love these types of movies, especially when I don't know they are them when I find them. because they're so bizarre and so different. Like Walter Hill wrote this purposely to be as minimal as possible. That's what he said. He wanted to strip away as much as he could. And I think that's probably why some people didn't like it when it came out, but that's why it's so captivating to me. So do you have any experience with the idea with like talking like existential films, like what that really means? Um, so
1: you know my my kind of take on on existentialism in, in movies. I know is it's a very
0: film class thing to say, but <laughs> right, right, right. That's what it, that's why it, I want to do this podcast, it, Right, <laughs> it, it,
1: is that uh, you know movies are movies are about conflict, mm-hmm. and they're about things being at stake. Mm-hmm. And anytime you have that, you're inevitably going to get to certain existentialist Oh, yeah, moments yeah. are top like just in any like you know in, in first bueller's day off you know, you oh, know what I yeah mean? yeah yeah anything anything, <laughs> anything. so it, it's um uh i i think that sometimes it it, it you know it, if it's like a you know bergman movie or something like mm-hmm. that where it's like really kind of pounding you over the head or oh yeah yeah like an antonioni movie or something like that then it's it's kind of easier to talk about i th- i kind of felt like with this that my my read on hill is that he's a a deeply intellectual filmmaker Mm -hmm. who is in the grand tradition of American filmmakers who pretend that they're not intellectual. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. I mean
0: that, 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 that plays his career to a T. Yeah.
1: But, but like, like it's like with like, you know, that, that famous uh, interview Bogdanovich did with John Ford. He's like, you know, how did you shoot? She wore a yellow ribbon or something like that. And Ford's like with a camera, you know, you know, it's like, that, that, that there's a, a certain kind of uh, m- maybe in, in Europe uh, among European filmmakers, it was kind of easier to embrace like kind of large intellectual ideas in films. And even when they exist in American movies, they were kind of underplayed or, and so I kind of feel like he'll, he'll talk about like reading film criticism. Mm-hmm. He'll say when he, he got into like movies, when he really got into movies, he first got into European movies and Japanese movies. And then he, he read all this film criticism on them. So he's just like, you know serious a c- cerebral kind of uh, a cinematic mind mm-hmm. but then i think he he's working in hollywood so then he dials that back a lot you know yeah. at, at least the way that he kind of like put it into words so, I mean I'm, i don't want to i'm speaking for the man but well, that,
0: yeah yeah you know, but yeah i think you're right i also think like keep in mind like this is near the tail end of like new hollywood hmm. you know the the 70s auteur movement and hill's not really a part of that but he's definitely influenced by it. I mean, he cast Ryan O'Neill in this movie. Yeah. He ha- so he had to have seen Peter Bogdanovich films. I think Peter Bogdanovich's early films are the most, some of the most new Hollywood films you can possibly imagine.
1: So wait, so 70 uh 76 was Rocky, 77 was Star Wars. Yes, yes. So the the whole town had changed. So this is kind of the last gasp of that kind of like
0: Yeah, New Hollywood kind of fell apart in the later half of the 70s because of stuff like Star Wars, also because of stuff like Heaven's Gate. Right. And big New Hollywood bombs. Right. You know, Walter Hill's movies, I think this one kind of took a long time to get made so that, you know, I don't think this movie, this movie obviously got greenlit before Star Wars came out, you know? Yeah. If if it came out in 78, it was greenlit before. Right, right. Star Wars, and also they're both Fox.
1: <laughs> yeah, distrib-
0: distributed by Fox. Yeah, so may- Fox. maybe
1: maybe the success
0: of Star Wars made it possible. <laughs> Possibly a lot of money. That's all that stuff. But this was probably filmed in seven. Probably filmed in seventy-seven. When did uh, Jaws was seventy-six as well? Jaws is seventy. I want to say seventy-five.
1: Okay, yeah. So I mean, that kind of one-two-three punch of obviously, yeah. Uh, uh, you know the, the, those, you know Jaws, Rocky, and Star Wars. That just changed the town. Oh, and, totally, totally. And, and it's so interesting that Hill then was then able to like verse adeptly kind of make the leap into something like for, you know Forty Eight Hours.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Um,
1: which really kind of set up like a lot of nineteen eighties movies. And
0: well, I think Hill also had one foot like with the the Warriors wasn't a big hit because of a, it was so controversial, but mm-hmm. that's an exploitation film. Oh yeah, like that's a movie you make to make money. And the Long Riders is a movie you make I didn't I haven't seen that. I really want to. Mm-hmm. But that didn't that made money, you know. It wasn't huge, but it was a hit. And that's 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 not an artsy film. I think the only artsy thing about long riders is the casting. Right. <laughs> you know? And then Bruce does millions, obviously. Like he's he was he had adapted himself to fit what Hollywood wanted out of him, I think. Yeah. At least at least until about eighty five. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then God damn! Another forty-eight hours. Every time I think about it, this it pisses me off. But. <laughs> <laughs> But the the thing about existential film, like existential crime films, and and I've I've touched upon this a little bit, is there are these movies where, like all films are conflict, and all films are about people's actions having consequences. I understand that, but in mm-hmm. in, in these type of movies, the people aren't people; they're roles, or they're they are ideas turned into people. Like, and that can be good or bad. Think of like Ghost Dog. You've seen Ghost Dog. No, I've never actually seen... I haven't seen many, like, Jim Drummer's movies. (laughs) (laughs) Jim Drummer's is good at these movies, too. Like, Um, Down by Law and Ghost Dog, those characters aren't characters. They're ideas put in a movie, Mm -hmm. and they have names. Or, or, to a lesser degree of success, you know, American Beauty,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: which is aged terribly.
1: (laughs) I hated that movie when it came out.
0: I liked it. I didn't think it was the best movie of the year, but I thought it was fine. I never wanted... And, you know it's very much of its era. And that's a movie about suburban life and and being a middle-aged person. And those characters are ideas. I feel that when you look at these crime movies, and I keep going back to Thief, because A, Thief is great. Yeah, it is great. (laughs) And this reminds me a lot about Thief. You have a character who has their rule set. They live by a set of rules that they follow, and it allows them to function kind of outside of society as much as possible to get what they want even if they're not really happy like like i don't think the driver's is happy but no. the, the second the second they have to compromise their rule set everything goes to shit but it doesn't for him though the like, movie has does, a ha- yes so for him he it doesn't it doesn't go how he wants it to
1: well it doesn't matter like it, for me it kind of like when i was watching the movie it's like i felt like this is a guy who is the best at what he does mm-hmm. and that the Bruce Dern's character thinks that he's like a super cop and he's not, but he's just like dealing with dumb criminals. Yes, yes. And and so here he's confronted with a guy who's a great criminal Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the driver knows that he's vastly better at what he does than everyone else. And so he's like at a certain point, like kind of just bored with everything.
0: Yeah, that's the look, the look on, yeah, Ryan O'Neill's acting in this is so bizarre, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Right. But, like, the look on his face, it's like he's a doll. Right. Or or that he's sad. Right. Or confused. He never seems to have, he never has any anger in his eyes. No. He's no. just a blank slate in which he is, because he's, because, like, again, he's a, he's a driver, he's not a person. But so he, he goes through the movie and like,
1: you know, when he he like kind of jimmies that car, he has that kind of the the, the thing that he used to jimmy open the car. He just leaves it in the car. Yeah. yeah. And so he's like trying to make it more like, you know, he, he's a guy that drives fast. So he must get some sort of like visceral thrill of that. And he's trying to make things more complicated because he can just get away no matter what.
0: Yeah, I guess and, so. Yeah. And so
1: by the end of the movie like i guess we can get into melville now but like the obvious comparison that's, that's always made for to, for this movie is samurai but yes. for me for me it's like more of like bob the gambler i haven't you know? seen that well so bob the gambler is this movie about a guy who's a gambler and he always loses okay. and, and at the end of the movie he starts winning but it screws up the caper and he he wins but he loses because the caper gets blown and he gets arrested okay okay so that's the plot of the movie this is like this thing kind of almost kind of re- reverse it's about a guy who always wins and at the end when he loses he still wins cuz he gets away
0: yeah yeah and but so but he still uh, seems he still seems unhappy about it
1: that's yeah i mean he's yeah, you know, yeah. he's, a, he's, a, he's a kind of a miserable guy but yeah. but like i always say, like when i was watching the movie again i was thinking like let's say he did get away with this money w- what would he do with it nothing
0: yeah he has no life he's not a he, <laughs> he doesn't buy anything <laughs> You know? Yeah. So uh, we've talked about it. Like, there's a movie Les Samurai, right? Yeah. And that's by Melville, the Melville. Right. Alain, Alain Dion, It is. Oh, yeah, Alain Delon, Yeah. Alain Delon, It is the most French movie. Like <laughs> that came out in 1967. That was a huge like international thing. Like it was, you know, very big deal uh, when it came out. And that is the prototype for this kind of film, in my in my opinion.
1: Oh yeah. And the, the thing that's so interesting, I think about that movie and about Melville as a director okay. and about French crime movies is that mm-hmm. if you look at like, uh, uh, something like, uh, Rafifi, the Jules Dawson movie, okay, uh, that's like a, a, a you know, a French kind of heist movie and they're doing it as a kind of a straight up kind of heist movie. And when you get to like Melville, Melville, like, you know, Dawson is really interested in American crime movies but he's putting even a stronger French sensibility on them. Yeah. But he's not a new wave director. He's not. No. He's not from that. Cl- he's about 10 years older than Godard and Truf- Truffaut and Chabron and those guys and stuff like that. He's kind of their older, a guy that's already made it and then becomes friendly with them. Um, so he still has this kind of, st- still kind of like mainstream sensibility that, so even when he makes Les Samarais it's this kind of this arty, you know, movie and it's not like like a movie that Goddard would make, you know, Goddard.
2: No, w- no, no, no. <laughs>
1: like Goddard would try to make like, like when Goddard made breathless, he said, I was trying to make Scarface, Howard Hawks, Scarface, but it ended up when I saw it, it ended up, it, I ended up realizing that I'd made Alice in
0: Wonderland. You know what I mean? The, yeah. So, well, Le Samurai has too much plot. It does, I think. but,
1: but it's like a, it's still like a, a man in its his room movie. But I mean, know? to
0: be a Goddard film,
1: Oh, I mean, no. Well, there, yeah. there's there's not enough like, uh, like you know, all the scenes. You know, it's like say like the samurai's a man in his room movie, like you know, Taxi Driver. I thought this movie, the driver, was more of a man in his room movie, but there's only one scene where he's
0: actually in his room, <laughs> <laughs> which is a weird scene. The samurai is a, a we- I to be honest, I saw that for the first time this week. Okay, I had never seen it before, and um, it's a it's a it's a good movie, but I. I get why it was a big deal, but it really wasn't my thing as much. Oh, I loved it. Like, I mean, it's it's cool for sure. That was fantastic. It's cool and it looks great. And I think the ending, the la- the the last ten minutes, really pulled all together for me. Yeah. Before that, I'm kind of like, what what's going on? But knowing the ending, I like the rest of the movie more. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And but Les Samurai is a really complex film. In we don't know what's going on. Right. We don't there's more going on than what we're told. You know, there's more going on than what the samurai than what the hitman's told cuz the samurai's about a hitman yeah who kills somebody and there's a witness who won't ID him. We don't know who hired him. We don't know why the guy wanted him dead. We don't know why what this guy did. We don't know why the witness won't ID him. Right. We don't know anything. There's reasons for it's not like it's just complete nonsense. We just we're just never told. Right. And so it's a it's not the driver is extremely minimal. Right. Uh Le Samurai is not. But there are definite definite ties, definite comparisons between Jeff the Hitman and the driver. They are very similar characters. The um, thing
1: that the thing that's so like y- you know, interesting about Le Samurai is that all those scenes where he's like in his room and there's like a bird there. And then there's all these other scenes where he'll go like steal like a car and he's got these like big keychain. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, he tries like it goes through and like tries every single key all these master keys that he has for each car mm-hmm. and, and so it has this very kind of very kind of i, I don't want to say languid because it makes a movie sound slow and boring it's not but it, deliberate it just, it's deliberate it, it has this kind of it's very it has this, this kind of rhythm to it yeah um the driver's very exciting because you have these yeah. massive car chases kind of interspersed with the movie. And I was go- I actually went back to watch Drive, yeah. you know, which is kind of one of the the you know after the driver created this new kind of sub subgenre of wheelman movies. Yeah. Um there's like fewer car traces in Drive, but there's more talking. Yeah. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. Drive <laughs>
0: it's drive like an is anti-driver. A, or drive, is, drive is, I feel really influenced by the I'm sure Nicholas Winding Refn has seen Les Samurai. Oh yeah, like, without question. And I feel that Drive is kind of much more similar to Les Samurai in that but I don't know, Drive's a weird movie and it's kind of middle of the road, no pun intended, between <laughs> between the hype the hyper ex- ex- existentialism of these films and something more mainstream because the character in Drive who does not have a name. Right. But he wants to be, he doesn't fit in the world, but he tries to. Right. The Driver and Jeff and My Samurai, they make no attempt to live by society's rules or pretend to be a normal human being. Because there's even that song in Drive, You're a Real Human Being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. And it's like him, like, you kind of feel that he wants to get away from this life and be a real human being. Right but all he can do is drive cars fast. So either right. he's a stunt man or a driver, but it does take a lot from the driver in that, you know, he is at the end of the day, his character is more of just, he's, he's just thrust in this situation and does what he does. Mm, yeah. yeah. And then of course there's baby driver, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> which, which Edgar Wright claims that the driver is an influence on baby driver. I don't, I don't, I don't really see it.
1: (laughs) I don't either. I like it's a, it's such a. I mean, Edgar Wright has such kind of an like a a likeable, affable persona.
0: Yeah, and I love Baby Driver. Yeah, and I think. Oh, I love that movie.
1: And and it comes across in that picture, and it has a lot of heart, and it's it's also, I think, a very sweet movie. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of feel like the cool thing about Baby Driver, in comparison to The Driver, is like he saw The Driver. And he's like, "Wow, this is amazing! I love this movie." Uh, and then he only took like kind of the wheelman aspect of it, and then did something completely
0: different. He took the idea of this wheelman kind of not like I, I don't. How do I? Say, I don't. Okay, if I if I say this wrong, I apologize. I, but Baby and Baby Driver, I think, is kind of being played as someone who's maybe on the spectrum. I think I. That's the present. Like he's not. He he just thinks differently. Right. Okay. Like, not in a bad way okay he just he thinks in a different way that's right. the baby a better way to put it you know and he well, I
1: because the, the this is kind of like what happened to him when he was younger
0: yeah that too that too he has a trauma
1: yeah yeah and so he's just kind of it seems like it's he's kind of working through that and he yeah meets a girl and it's yeah that's that's what that movie is about
0: yeah and so it but like aside from that character's kind of slightly irregular personality for a for a hollywood movie right it's A very hollywood movie right and I feel like you get, for all these films, starting with *Les Samurai and going in Baby Driver, the endings become more Hollywood. Yeah. You know, maybe the dr- drive a little bit in the middle ground, but the things that happen, like in the end of, in the end of Drive, he is somehow alive, which right. in real life, yo, that dude is dead, <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, and, but at the regardless, regardless, it's not a movie where the main character is designed to do something that will kill himself, you know? Right. He wants to get out of it. Baby Driver has an unrealistically happy ending. I think.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt.
0: Without um, a doubt. Yeah. So, uh, and
1: I, that's kind of the sweetness of that movie. I think that it's you know, like if you see if you see the opening credits of that movie, you would think, well, there's no way that this can't end <laughs> like in a yeah. in, in like in a happy way. But I, I feel like with Baby Driver, though, it, you could take that character out of the wheelman job. Mm-hmm. And you could put him in any other job pretty much. And that movie would still work. Yeah, totally. Um, that's not true with the driver. No, no, that's that's, no no
0: movie. No, he's the driver. That's (laughs) that's what he is. Like, (laughs) right. Yeah. Like you don't, I don't imagine what this character does. Like what is, what is the character? What does the driver and the driver do when he's 50 years old? He's dead. Right. he, (laughs) <laughs> Once he can't, like he he drives until he can't be. He drive, He's a getaway driver until he fails. Right. That's all he can do. That's no, yeah. enough There is literally no other thing about him. At least in Drive, uh-huh. Ryan Gosling's character has pathos and desires, and 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 he wants to do more with his life, but he's trapped. The driver, he's if tr- he looks like he's trapped, but doesn't want to change it. Maybe he does want to change it. And that's why he keeps trying
1: to make it easier for people to catch him. Yeah. Me, yeah, it's, And that's yeah. kind of maybe the, tra- he's, he's the reason why he's so sad mm-hmm. is that he knows this is all he can do and this is all he's going to do. And if, this will only stop when he gets caught. And then at the end of the movie, he's like, you know, I feel like the streak and maybe he thinks the streak is him losing and getting caught. And then when he, you know, he, he hands over the suitcase and there's no money in it. And he realizes that he won't get caught. It's like he's even more kind of. It's like it's even more kind of hopeless for him. Yeah,
0: it, yeah. And like Bruce, the detective, the detective could have totally arrested him mm-hmm. for any number of crimes. Like, yo, he killed a dude. Right. <laughs> like two dudes. Right. But he doesn't because he wanted to catch him doing this one crime. Right. And the detective and his magical brigade of policemen. <laughs> yeah, that's the best cut in the whole movie. Who <laughs> <to> show up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like and that's that also is kind of in my idea of like trying to assign human desires and and human consequences to the characters in this film doesn't work because like Streets of Fire, mm-hmm. yo, this is not the real world. Right. This is this Streets of Fire is hyper real. Mm-hmm. This is De- this is deliberately unreal in, in, in right. the, almost in the opposite direction it's right it's pure it's the script writers it's like it's like script writing wet dream it's like you just what's the most barren thing we can do to a movie and have it still be a movie reading about the movie there are pages of this script that have no dialogue oh yeah i can that's that. very rare yeah usually if there is a long scene in a film that has no dialogue in the script it's not three pages (laughs) they 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 figure out a way to write it quicker but there are pages in the script of no dialogue because they they just want to keep it as barren as possible and to create this world that is just completely just different than anything i think you know you
1: know I, i think like ultimately just kind of the the most unusual and going back to like Last to jump back to like Last Man Standing, which I think makes Last Man Standing so interesting and bizarre as well, yeah. is is that, so Walter Hill is being influenced by French movies and other movies, but we'll mm-hmm. say predominantly, let's say French movies, they were interested by Hollywood movies. So we have a Hollywood filmmaker mm-hmm. being influenced by a filmmaker who is influenced by Hollywood films. Oh, so that, the, yeah. That kind of, and then the same thing is like, the thing that I think makes, uh, Last Man Standing is so such a interesting and I think great movie as well. Is like here's a guy that kind of looked at at uh, you know Jimbo and he's like oh that's a great story you know that had already been remade into something great as well.
0: And things that aren't great, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so and so and so him saying like like well I can do it, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sure, why not? I'll that, do it. That's not my favorite shit. I love it when this is a movie influenced by French movies, influenced by American movies. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. it's like The Matrix is a movie influenced by Hong Kong movies influenced by Sam Peckinpah right you know, I, I, I always find it really fascinating when the influences go around international or like that been back home <laughs> it's it's such a cool thing to me
3: Shut
0: up and drive shut up that we both you know love this movie obviously mm-hmm. but nobody did <laughs> yeah when it came out like Sadly. <laughs> walter hill says that the only reason he survived this movie is that he was already filming the warriors right and then that became came out. a surprise hit and that was a moderate hit and 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 caught a lot of attention so that kept his career going but this movie bombed it <laughs> It made about four million, I think. It cost about four million. So that's not good. It did good in Japan. I I actually was able to find the Japanese numbers. It made about five hundred million yen. Which is pretty good. And I don't know if that's adjusted for inflation or what, but that's not bad for a small movie in Japan back then. Right. And but not enough to really make a profit, I think, overall. And
1: Um. Alan Delon was a, like a big star in Japan. Oh yeah, he was
0: huge, and so was so was Bronson.
1: So I, I feel like that that there's like a certain probably with the Japanese like cinema, cinema going public because you know they liked Alan Delon. This is like, well, this is kind of like a Alan Delon movie, but made with like you know Hollywood star and then this big you know French film star as well. I think it kind of actually had an easier in mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe among audiences.
0: Uh, In Japan then. uh. And Hard Times was big in Japan. Oh, okay. And, well, because Bronson's huge here in Japan. I say here because we both live in Japan. And not everyone knows that. But, yeah. (laughs) And so I think that might have helped it too just by saying that. And Walter Hill's all – usually does pretty good in Japan. Like back then. Like It's a Fire. (laughs) Right. It's a Fire was much more popular in Japan. It wasn't huge here in Japan, but critics in Japan loved it. Wow. And it made a decent amount of money. Here. like whenever I go to record stores I can find that soundtrack in five seconds you know oh really oh yeah I have I have 45 singles like the 40 like the singles right to the soundtrack to fire those were only released in Japan there was no US version
1: <laughs> that's hilarious
0: that. yeah and so he a lot of his films do well here Southern Comfort did not that's the one that he always says like he said that did shit any that didn't do shit anywhere but critics in America hated it my favorite one there are two reviews here that I thought were really funny. This guy David Manuela of the Indianapolis News. He says, "As a demonstration of the art of acting, the driver is a major atrocity." <laughs> As a chase film, the movie is terrific. I feel like that's the best review I found. The a much more commonly, people hated the acting in this movie. They hated it. It's so good, though. And, well, I don't think they were picking up what he was putting down. Right. Because, like. Go. And here is here is one review. I I like the movie, but I get this guy's point. This this guy Joe Balt Balt. Balt I don't even know Joe Baltake. I'll say Joe Baltake. I don't know from the Philadelphia Joel Daily Planet. News. Right. Before long, the self conscious ardiness of it becomes annoying. The story never progresses. The kid he calls the characters languid, one dimensional uh, sleepwalkers, basically, and. I get the point of like, this movie is self-consciously artistic. Right. And that, if you're not driving with that, that is annoying. Yeah. So that is the one negative review that I, I can agree with, you know, but like the I, other people just didn't, they just didn't get it. And I, I think it took a long time for this movie to really find its audience. And I think drive really helped that. I feel, I feel like the other thing that kind of gives
1: the, the movie, um, kind of helped the movie, were the 1980s, to be on, to be honest. What do you mean? Like the whole decade of movies that came out in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So if you have a whole decade of movies of kind of like 1980s-style movies, and when they show like tough guys or chase scenes, and every time that there's a tough guy, he says something funny or cool, um, and just that whole kind of like, the whole machismo of that era. And then you go back to watch – the driver you're like wow i can't believe hollywood used to make or
0: act, and made a movie like this. oh yeah that's a good point so look kind of like a pushback against the 80s style
1: i mean it would yeah like a, it was just like a, a re, i mean if i think if we saw this now like if it popped up on netflix or something like that uh, i think it'd still be great um but it, it wouldn't you know i think that because since then we had the 90s and we had these kind of we've had i guess you know now i feel like that we're kind of reaching a new kind of period of of kind of like interesting movies as well. Um, But I think just it makes such a stark contrast to kind of the big studio pictures that came out in the uh, post-Star Wars, Rocky,
0: um, you know, Jaws era. That's a fantastic point, yeah. And I think that Walter Hill's, I think, you know, again, let's be real, Walter Hill's career didn't really survive the 80s in terms of quality. But I think, Last man
1: standing, man. I'm, I'm gonna get you to.
0: <laughs> okay, well, last man. Okay, either either they did, either you think they're good or they bombed. Okay, like there is not a good Walter Hill movie that did good business <laughs> after Brewster's Millions.
2: Oh, uh, hey, really?
0: Okay, let's say Geromino's good. It didn't make money. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I like mean, that Trespass. Good... That didn't yeah. make money. You know, so you can't. He didn't have both ever again.
2: Mm-hmm. So I
0: think that that's safe too. It, it is a hundred. It is accurate that he did not have a hit. That was a good movie at the same time after Bruce's millions. You know, do you, do you like red heat? Uh, do I, the, the opening of that movie is ridiculous. The opening. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, no, no, no,
1: no. I, I'm not saying I like the opening. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that it's like absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah. So, it,
0: but I feel like the, there was a reassessment of his, of forty of Sweets of fire. Mm hmm. And the Warriors and even Hard Times. And I think the driver got to come along. Yeah. And so though like that his seventy-five to eighty-five, man, those are all awesome, awesome movies. And it's one of them. So it, f- it it's in that pantheon.
1: I, I feel like that his the kind of reassessment of Hill really started I mean, at least when I started to notice was really because, you know, when I went to go see it um at the at the at the Egyptian, I mean it was kind of like a big deal that they were showing it in 35. They were getting a print from 20th Century Fox. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I kind of feel like that had already, probably been before then, there was kind of a, because um, around that same time, Last Man Standing came out.
2: Okay.
1: It, and I remember kind of a lot of like uh, uh, like movie nerd friends of mine at that time were saying, like, oh, Last Man Standing. Like, you know, Hill did his own version of Ujimbo and it's like totally different from, uh, you know, from the way Leone did it. And he he was going to like remake. He wanted to remake the killer, the John Woo movie.
0: Yeah, I remember that. That would have been something else.
1: Yeah, and like, and I was like, you're talking about like red heat. If you look at the shootouts in that movie,
0: they're not great. <laughs> they're really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but,
1: I but the shootouts of Last Man Standing are amazing.
0: Yeah, well, I th- I feel that's definitely him taking what John Woo was doing and running with it.
1: Or and- even going back to it, like Peck and Paul. He's yeah. going back to the source because there's a scene in Last Man Standing where he shoots a guy out of like the hotel or saloon or whatever. He goes out in the street and he's like pulled out by wires, you know? Yeah. And then he goes around and shoots a whole bunch of other people. And then it cuts back to that guy still falling, still flying through the air out into the street, like it, much slower. Yeah. And that was something like Peck and Paul did a bunch in like the Wild Bunch. He would, like, some guy would be f- falling at a really slow speed and then a bunch of sh- shootouts then cut back the guy still falling and then shootouts again and stuff. So
0: I have to watch it again. Cause I only saw it once. Like yeah, I saw it in the theaters and it was a situation behind that with strains. And like, I, I have to watch it again. Cause I do recall liking it. Right. You know, but that's all I really call is liking it. I don't remember anything about it.
1: Um, the, the, like, I think the point that you made earlier about like that you liked when, let's say American movies would be influenced by, foreign movies that were influenced by American movies. Yeah. That's in last man standing, but it's a guy who is, you know, kind of involved with the people who made that those movies that were influenced the Hong Kong movies. Yeah. Been kind of in, So it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I also think that th- it's going to sound weird. I think the warriors video game helped. <laughs> nice. I mean, honestly, I think <laughs> really? that opened up the warriors to a new audience. Yes. Okay. And we then from, from there, you know, other movies you know because like that game was great (laughs) yeah so man i'm making a new warriors video game but yeah have you ever really i'm just curious have i asked eric pope this when we were talking about streets of fire have you seen the assignment i've not seen it no i god i want to i said i wanted to watch that movie but i had too much going on before this because that's the one where uh, michelle Rodriguez plays a man who was forcibly transitioned into a woman Right, yeah, with Sigourney Reaver. with Sigourney Reaver at the psychotic plastic surgeon, and yeah, like <laughs> did it, yeah. I, I read an interview with him. He, he, he. People, would, people stood would up, asked him about the, you know, don't yo, what the fuck? And right, yeah, 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 yeah. He, it's, he, he,
3: he,
0: he had a good answer. He was like, "This is not about a trans person." Right. So I think he knew what he was doing. I don't know if it's a good movie, but I bet it's, I bet it's fucking weird. So I'd yeah, he, uh, I'd heard, I'd read some interview where he said
1: that the like he had heard of the idea that I guess he didn't, I don't think he actually wrote the script. It's an
0: old script. It was yeah, an, it's old from an old script. He like going re-wrote. back in the seventies. Yeah. You know he, I mean? It was drastic. The original version sounded more fucked up.
1: Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel like, uh, uh, it's weird. It's like, I guess he's wanted to make this for a long
0: time. He was, yeah, semi retired, and he was like, and he, he
1: wanted to come back and do that. So yeah, I mean, it seems, um, 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 and, and, you know, and it has music by
0: maroder. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I gotta watch this movie. Like I I keep talking about it in this podcast. I really gotta check it out.
1: Like, going back to the Michael Mann stuff. Okay. Um, the guys that pull off the robbery are wearing hockey masks.
2: Good point. Yeah. Like, that,
1: like, like out of heat. Um, yeah. And, and like, the same exact – I mean, they're colored. There's, like, I think one's red and one's green or blue or something. Um, and so I really – I think Walter Hill and Michael Mann are friends, and I think they've been friends and they've gone back a long way. Um, but I, I kind of wonder – uh, when when the driver came out if michael mann saw it and was like damn it that's what i want to do yeah. or like it wasn't like i'm going <laughs> to copy cool look, this. The cool yeah. look. Yeah, yeah like not not like not like i'm going to copy this like he'd already had it like fully formed in his own brain and then was like oh man he got to it first
0: <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well he hadn't made. A, his, i mean michael mann's first movie is thief yeah and that's what 81 82 81 81, 81, okay. 81 yeah and uh, we keep talking about thief but again if if you like the driver, you'll like you'll like Thief. If you like Thief, you'll like the driver. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, just very similar films. And again, like I said earlier, you'll also like you'll also like the mechanic, not the Jason Statham mechanic. We <laughs> make a name only, and in 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 decent chase scene only. No, the the Charles Bronson movie, the mechanic is. Very much. I would not be surprised if Walter Hill was at least subconsciously influenced by that movie.
1: Ah, uh, now I got to see it.
0: It's great. It's one of my favorite. It's right up there with uh, *Hard Times* and *Mr. Majestic*.
1: Oh, and nice.
0: *Mr. Majestic* is also great. That's where Charles Bronson plays. You know, Charles Bronson's just a watermelon farmer man, and you don't don't fuck up his melons. <laughs> I mean, I could have told you that, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's about it. Yeah. I think I obviously both recommend this movie. It's pretty easy to get. And if you want to get, if you you know, it's, it's a lesser known film by Hill compared to other classics, but totally, totally, totally worth seeing. Fantastic movie. So Brian, thanks again for doing this with me. Why don't you tell the people where they can find you on the old internet?
1: Uh, I'm, I guess you can find me on uh, Twitter. I'm at, Brian underscore Ashcraft um, and, uh, and Kotaku or any of the
0: books that I've written. Um, yeah. Like what, what is it? Tell them some of your books. Oh,
1: okay. So uh, I recently, I guess my most recent book is about uh, sake. And uh, so I wrote a whole book on that Bef- before that was about Japanese whiskey. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> Japanese, <laughs> the good stuff. Um, and uh, Japanese tattoos, a whole bunch of stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we but, yeah. like, we got to get faced one day and talk about Doris Day. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Lost Turntable and on my website lostturntable.com. I also occasionally do a podcast about progressive rock called Alexander's Ragtime Band with uh, Jimmy Paris and Elliot Long. So if that sounds something you might be interested in, maybe check that out too. But anyway, it's been another episode of Cinema Oblivia. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again next week. You can't
3: go Nothing's wrong